You're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the community radio network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name's Olivia Rosenman. And coming up on the show, we'll have a chat about the ACT Chief Minister and his hatred of journalists and the mainstream media. We'll talk about Miranda Devine's podcast and how it's going a few months in. And we're going to look at gender editors and ask if we need some in Australian newsrooms. Joining me in the studio is Fairfax senior writer Nick O'Malley. Hi, Nick. Good evening. And on the line from Melbourne is Misha Ketchell, editor of The Conversation. Hi, Misha. Hi. I hate journalists. I am over-dealing with the mainstream media. No, that's not my words. These are the words of the ACT's Chief Minister, Andrew Barr, speaking at an event for communications specialists late last week at the ACT Parliament. Barr called Canberra's main newspaper, the Canberra Times, a joke, and he set out his government's clear and deliberate strategy to bypass the media and communicate directly with Canberrans. Now, the speech was recorded, uh, apparently unbeknownst to Barr, and on Monday it was reported by the Canberra Times alongside a scathing editorial that compared Barr to Trump and documented a series of the Barr government's wrongdoings that have been revealed by the paper. The editorial finished with the solemn vow that it would continue to fulfil its duty in the interests of the public, not the politician, long after Mr Barr's time in power is over. And many other mainstream media publications followed suit, slamming Barr for his ignorant comments that undermine democracy. Nick, how worried should we be about these kinds of ideas coming from the leader of a territory Look, it's pretty ugly language. I don't know that we need to be too worried about it. He's already walked it back, which suggests that he's embarrassed. Um, He wouldn't be the first politician to hate journalists. He's probably just among the first in Australia to declare it so so happily before such a large audience. I think what's more dangerous about what he said and did is his decision to instruct uh, members of his government not to deal with the media or talk to the media. And that is a dangerous, I think that's a dangerous trend. That's putting a barrier between people who serve the community and should be serving the community and people who should be questioning them and challenging them and challenging their policy. And I, I thought that was a bigger problem. Misha, Canberrans are an extremely educated and well-informed population. How do you think or how have they reacted to Barr's comments? I don't know. I haven't been out asking individual Canberrans what they think about it. I mean, my own view is that there's actually an element of truth in what he says um, uh, in, in a few ways. In one sense, he's actually right about the demographics of the audiences that um, mainstream media outlets tend to speak to. So in his paper like the Canberra Times, I'm sure if you looked at their readership, it would it would skew somewhat older. Um, and he was talking about that's, that's not a reason to hate strategies. them, though. <laughs> no, but it is a reason. It is a, a, a reason for a good, intelligent government to think about developing communication strategies that target younger um, audiences and younger readers. And the second thing, which I think is true, and I, I understand and empathise with his frustration, um, is that media outlets aren't very good at communicating complex policy issues or policy questions. They do tend to sift stories into certain types of narratives that 
will um, serve the need of the media organisation to create a story that they feel will be interesting or will drive circulation or will meet the needs of the newsroom culture, which dictates that certain types of things need to be done in a certain way. And I think he's actually right. I don't think journalists are very good at communicating what governments do in a sober and fair way. And I think if he does have a complex policy that he wants to get some debate about, um, it is very hard to use the media to do that. Um, so I think that the media needs to look at ourselves as well. I don't think we're actually that good. But are politicians necessarily better placed to communicate complex <coughs> policies? I mean, there's an obvious conflict of interest there, so we can't really take it straight from them. If it's not, if that conversation's not going to happen in the media, where where's it going to happen? But, but the other side of that is he's saying that he can't get the message through the media. They won't let those stories be told in a reasonable way. Well, um, And if that is indeed the case, then he's got, he's got an issue, hasn't he? Already in this conversation, we're falling into that really stupid trap that really upsets me when I hear it bandied about in broad, that broad term, the media, every day. We keep saying the media. The media is bad at this. The media is doing that. That's just bullshit. There's not the media. It doesn't exist. The Daily Telegraph does something and someone attacks the Sydney Morning Herald for it. And you point out to them, well, that was the Daily Telegraph. And this has happened to me in the past few weeks. And they say, well, so what? You're all the same. That's like going to Ford and saying, my Holden doesn't work. You should fix it. So I do think that there is good and bad in the media. I also think that during the news cycle, there's good and bad. We do, as Misha just said, sometimes put simplistic stories up at the top of our websites to get clicks. But the first thing I did to this morning after hearing Labor announce its new tax policy yesterday was gather up all of our newspapers and go through them, Fairfax and, and News Limited, and look at some online things. And I got really good, broad analysis of what that policy meant. And I got nothing from the, the Liberal Party, which came out and said they're stealing from retirees, which was nonsense. Well, I think, I mean, that's, you know, I mean, that sounds like that particular issue has been covered well, and I wouldn't disagree with you there. And I wouldn't disagree with you either on differentiating media. But what I would say is in a, in a small town like Canberra with one newspaper, where um, somebody like Andrew Barr has one newspaper to try to get his message through when he's trying to deal with complex policy questions, he's obviously expressing a genuine frustration with the ways in which journalists are reporting um, those stories. Now, that could be entirely his partisanship. Maybe, you know, they're not, they're not putting the spin on it that he'd like, and that's part of the normal friction of normal business between journalists and politicians. But I would suspect that if you looked at it closely, and I think overall, um, you know, all newspapers and all of the reporting that we do, um, media outlets are often responsible for not, not telling stories as well as they could in terms of focusing on the policy substance. I don't think he's because going to do a better of... job with the hundred media advisors he employs tweeting about his views, which is what he's really advocating. You'd... He's advocating you getting around the media. No, you, you, do you think that you can engage <clears throat> in complex policy debate via Twitter? No, I don't, but I think you can access audiences that you might not be able to access otherwise via Twitter, and then you could use that to direct them to more detailed discussions potentially look I, I certainly don't don't agree with him that the solution to the problem is you know to end journalism i mean that's clearly not the case i mean journalists are massively valuable i'm a journalist you know, i i believe in in the practice of journalists but i do think that we need to cop on the chin some of the criticism because some of it is about our failings i mean it uh, reminds me of when i Lindsay absolutely Tanner wrote a, yeah and Lindsay tanner wrote a book you know four or five years ago after his time in Parliament called Sideshow. And it was about this precise problem. He was talking about 
the way the news cycle runs, the types of stories the media is interested in, and basically saying that, that reporters predominantly are more interested in the sideshow than the policy substance. And that's been a criticism that we have seen for a long time because we're all in a competitive environment where we've got to entertain readers and what is entertaining isn't necessarily getting down in the weeds of which policy is better or how things work. I think that's an absolutely fair criticism, but I I don't think announcing to a bunch of what he calls communications professionals, which means spin doctors, that he hates journalists is a really good way to begin this conversation. Probably not. I I think that's, that's probably fair, but I do think that, you know, there is something behind the frustration, and I know nothing about his government and the quality of the work that they're doing or not, not right. doing. Um, so there might be, you know, it might be that his frustration is born um, about, you know, some of the criticism of him maybe is entirely legitimate and fair. But um, I just know that overall, if we look at the way that the media functions and the amount of space that we have available for detailed policy discussion, it's certainly not untrue to say that getting complex policy across using media as a vehicle is very difficult. You're listening to For the Stage. At the end of last year, the Daily Telegraph launched a new online radio show to be hosted by their often controversial conservative columnist, Miranda Devine. Since December, Miranda Live has aired every afternoon, three times a week. It streams on the Daily Telegraph's website, on Facebook and on Twitter, and then it is published as a podcast. Now, the Telegraph proclaimed it would be groundbreaking, and they got off to an impressive start with the PM as the show's first guest. But last week, The Guardian's media columnist, Amanda Mead, revealed that the Daily Telegraph's head of digital, Peter Brown, sends out an email to all News Corp staff every Monday asking them to tune in to Miranda Live. She also spoke to journalists who complained that the show is live-streamed into the newsroom at Holt Street over the loudspeakers with one journalist telling her, quote, there is no escape. Amanda Mead also reported pitifully low numbers listening on both Facebook and Twitter when she tuned in recently, and she's not the only person to point out low audience numbers. When the PM was back on the show in late January, the ABC's Matthew Doran pointed out there were only 32 people tuning in. Now, I had a look today before we came into the studio to record, and I actually got the time wrong and missed the show, but within an hour after it having been published on Facebook at least, it had managed to clock up 3,800 views. And it seemed to be pretty consistent that there were 3,000 views per episode on the Facebook live videos. Uh, But the show is over an hour long, and I wondered how long someone has to watch for it to be counted as a view. Mead's article quoted from from a News Corp spokesperson who said she was extremely pleased with the results from Miranda Live so far and that after 12 shows, three per week for a month, the show had over 200,000 total streams from the Telegraph's website, 24,000 podcast downloads and 62,000 plus Facebook Live views. Misha, Amanda Mead wrote that the show was designed to increase traffic to the telly's website. Do you think that that is really the intention? I've got no idea. I've not listened to the show and I don't intend to. Um, and the reason is is pretty simple. Um, you know, we live in an attention economy where basically there's a massive amount of media out there seeking our attention. 
Um, and what we have to do as media consumers is pick the media that is most likely to inform us, to help us make better decisions in our lives. Um, and I know Miranda Devine's got a lot of opinions. I'm not particularly interested in them. I'm not particularly interested in what she's got to say. I'm interested in journalism that tries to surface the facts and the information that will help me be better informed. And I prefer to get my news in other ways. <laughs> great, great points well made there, Misha. Nick, do you think that, I mean, if the, the intention is to drive traffic to the telly's website, do you think that it'll work? Look, I, as an experiment, if, if Amanda Mead's numbers are correct, as an experiment so far it seems, to, it seems not to have. Um, I don't know. I, I think that it is a, a very normal thing for mastheads to be seeking to leverage their high-profile uh, voices who they have spent years grooming to to get them in front of their audiences in different ways and it's not bad for them to experiment that way in fact it's good for them to experiment that way so far it seems this experiment hasn't worked but it, it already informs you of a couple of things one if if Turnbull has turned up on it twice that is indicative of the power that emanates from Holt Street and the, and the Murdoch machine they can call on the Prime Minister and tell him to turn up and talk to Miranda Devine in front of 15 people. And th- that's worth <laughs> us knowing, worth us recognising. The second thing is that I've observed is that in the other media market I know best, which is the United States, News Limited or News Corp and Fox personalities flick back and forth between uh, TV and print really effectively. And they're really struggling. They're trying to do that in Australia and they're really struggling. For, uh, Sky News hasn't taken off. And the the way that they have pulled columnists from their mastheads and pushed them onto Sky, they, they simply haven't taken off yet as TV stars. Uh, and I, I'm sure they were trying to work out why that is. Uh, and maybe this is another experiment to that end. So far, it hasn't worked. That's a really good point. And I actually wonder why Australian journalists are so much worse at at that sort of... Um, you know, at that other medium, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Because whatever you think of, say, Sean Hannity... He is compelling on on TV, and many of the people on Fox are. And you read them in print. If you're looking at uh, Wall Street Journal or or other News Corp mastheads in America, you see people like George Will pop up or Charles Krauthammer. They're really effective communicators in print, and when they're on screen, they fill the screen, and they haven't been able to do it in Australia. It's a great point. And and the Telegraph is allocating a lot of resources to to make this work. So it's heavily promoting the show on the Telegraph's website. They sent Miranda to the US to record a show with Ambassador Joe Hockey and uh, Kerry Stokes. Do you think that we'll be talking about this show, that it'll still be uh, on air, I don't know, in a year's time? Will it make its year anniversary? If Amanda's figures are right, probably not. Uh, unless something happens, unless it takes off. But it's a great point, actually, because Amanda's figures are quite different to the spokeswoman's uh, figures reported, the, the News Corp spokeswoman. So We're wh- all really good at manipulating <laughs> audience figures to suit ourselves in this business. So that's it. You think that the News Corp spokesperson has somewhat fudged the figures here? I don't know. I haven't seen the analysis. But it's possible because we will always cherry-pick the best data from, from complex sets of data to tell our readers, our audiences, about how how well we're doing. And after all, we have heard from News Corp that the Australian's been making profits for an eternity. <laughs> do, do either of you guys listen to podcasts? Yes. All the time. This, this whole thing got me asking the question, do you think that there is more uh, 
left-wing or progressive podcast content out there than conservative right-wing content? I don't know. I haven't looked into that. I, I listen to hours and hours of Dan Carlin telling me about how the world's been destroyed over thousands of Oh, you of listen years. to that one. Uh, I love Dan Carlin. He's great. And just, yeah. my favourite, for keeping across American news, which I, which I still do as a former correspondent, I listen to a, a podcast called A1, which uh, I am sure conservative media would say is liberal, but I would say is pretty pure, straight-down-the-line analysis. That said, it, it could well be that there is more. You'd know better than me. You, you work in that field. Yeah, I mean, certainly my impression, but I haven't done any study or survey, but it, my impression is that it is more progressive. But once again, that might just be my own filter bubble and what I listen to. Misha, what do you think? Um, well, a lot of what I listen to just doesn't even fall into that paradigm. I, I sort of feel like that whole left-right, conservative-progressive distinction is sort of tired and unhelpful. I mean, I listen to a magnificent program called Radio Lab which mm. has got the most astonishing stories, science stories, human stories, beautifully told, This American Life, which is really storytelling-driven. I listen to something called On the Media, which does wonderful media analysis. Albeit from a very left-wing, progressive point of view, I would argue with well, On the Media, especially. Radio yeah, I can imagine you, you with, with, that, with that diet, I can imagine you with an NPR tote bag. and yeah. You might not think it's left-wing, <laughs> but I bet the Republican Party does. Yeah. Yeah, but I but I would still reject really. I mean, for me, the the idea, the characterisation. I just don't think it's helpful. I mean, what I look for is people that I can trust, who I think are doing good, rigorous journalistic work. If they have political views, um, you know, I try to be vaguely aware of them and keep them in my head. But I'm looking at the quality of evidence they're presenting. I'm looking at the quality of the production and the reporting. I'm not listening to radio and going back to Miranda Devine I'm not you know listening to other programs or or reading newspapers because I want the opinions of the presenters what I want is their work you're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Olivia Rosenman, and I'm speaking to Nick O'Malley and Misha Ketchell. Towards the end of last year, the New York Times appointed their first gender editor a journalist named Jessica Bennett, who has a track record of hard-hitting reporting on gender and sexism. Now, we don't yet have any gender editors at Australian newspapers, so I thought this might be a good opportunity to talk about whether or not we need them. Nick, do you think having a gender editor means that gender issues are siloed away? Or, I mean, should every desk have a gender editor? I think the New York Times should probably have a gender editor, but I don't know that Australian newspaper newsrooms should be. And I say that because the New York Times is huge and growing. It's one of the few news organisations in the world that is growing. Uh, and it's growing across the media that it uses, the countries that it operates in, and the number of staff it employs in the United States. Newsrooms in this country are really depleted. And uh, given how many specialist editors I have seen, or e editors' roles I have seen axed over the past few years, I don't think it would be good use of scarce resources in our newsrooms. That said, we should certainly be far more proactive in ensuring that our, all of our coverage um, is done with a self-conscious concern about the issues um, of gender equality in themselves, but also of how we are, how we are considering the world. Um, we, we should be aware of, of, of gender biases. Uh, so... You know, the Sydney Morning Herald has a female editor. I think that's far more effective for us than having a gender editor. And I have reported to women most of my reporting life, and I, I think that's a good thing. 
Misha, Jessica Bennett has said that I will know if I'm successful in this role when my job no longer has to exist. Do you think that's going to happen in her lifetime? Oh, God, that's a big prediction. I mean, I, I can't answer that question. I think what I what I can say is that there are, when you think of a gender editor, there are sort of two ways of thinking of the role, one of which is as somebody who is covering around the same way you'd cover urban affairs or Indigenous affairs or um, health or politics. Mm. Now, to me, the idea of having somebody covering gender as a round does make sense um, because I think it is a massive issue in in our society in society in the US and globally um, I think the me too movement is a, is a really big and significant story and I do think I mean I totally take Nick's point about scarce resources and having to make difficult decisions um, but I would argue if I was in that meeting I would argue that there is actually a benefit in having a gender editor as a reporting function to make sure that that massive story is is well covered the second aspect of having a gender editor is if you're trying to use that role to deal with the fact that your newsroom is stacked with blokes or that you've got a um, a culture which is not conducive to female reporting or unconscious gender bias. Now, I'm not quite so sure whether a gender editor can be a total solution to that problem. I think, you know, what Nick said is absolutely right. Having female leaders in the newsroom is hugely important. Um, and that change has been happening but it has been happening very slowly. I mean, I worked at Fairfax for a lot of years in the early 2000s, and I can tell you that even though there are a lot of women on the news desk and in the news conferences, it was still an extraordinarily male culture in so many ways. And there were so many ways in which sort of unconscious gender bias did define what stories were, what the news was. So I think you've got to work on both fronts. You need, you know, reporting of gender as an issue, as a breaking story, and you also need policies and approaches to try to get a better gender balance in, in your newsroom, and particularly in leadership positions. Yeah, I mean, I think I think they're both really good points. And in fact, Emily Watkins, who is Crikey's media reporter, spoke to a few people uh, last week about this issue and, and that idea of getting more equal newsrooms certainly was one that was uh, quite widely held. But I just wonder if actually, even if we do get many more women into newsrooms, if that necessarily solves the problem. I spoke last week to journalist Jane Gilmore, who runs the Fixed It project, where she takes a red pen to headlines uh, and articles written about violence against women and corrects them for when they place the blame on the victim or uh, focus on the victim and remove all focus from the perpetrator. Now, what was interesting about that was that many of those articles um, are actually written by women. So it I think to your second point, Misha, having someone focus on on reporting through that lens, on revealing the way that gender biases uh, can pervade even among women reporters is a really good idea. Last week for International Women's Day, the New York Times announced Overlooked, which is a series of female obituaries that takes square aim at the paper's long-term disparity in gender obituaries. 
Uh, Nick, I dare say that a historical look at the SMH's obituaries would probably also reveal a whole lot of men. Can we hope to see something similar in the pages of the SMH soon? I think it's a great idea. The moment I saw that, I, I thought how much I'd, I'd love to rip that off. The obituaries have been fantastic. The recognition at, at what we lost by ignoring half our population has been fantastic. And, and the New York Times has done a beautiful job of it. It is harder for us just to steal ideas from the New York Times now that they're operating in Australia. <laughs> but I actually would. I'd advocate for that. I, I certainly think we should do that. I think it would go some way to redressing an entrenched imbalance which has been there for, for all of our modern history. Um, I haven't had those discussions in the office yet. It's a great idea it's a, and it's a really, you know, there's so, much, there's so much great material there to be looking into. I'd be fascinated. I hope someone does do it. Of course, the other aspect of the way that uh, gender and inequality makes itself clear in the media is in sources and talent that are often overwhelmingly male. Is that something that either of your publications, I mean, I guess, Misha, the conversation works a little bit differently, and maybe I'll ask you a separate question after that, but Nick, is that something that uh, at the Fairfax people are aware of? Uh, certainly on the opinion pages, there's a, a definite decision there to try But what and about encouraging quality. journalists to seek women as sources no, in their stories? No one has ever put that to me apart from readers. And a, and a reader did it recently. I did some stories on uh, Woolworths and gambling. Uh, and in the course of my reporting, a handful of prime sources appeared and they had great material and I ran the story and it had some impact. And that was a criticism levelled at me. And I, I responded at first saying, you, you know, you make a fair point, but none of the sources that I came across in my research happened to be women. And that person supplied some and, you know, in future I will, I will change the sourcing. But no, we haven't, as far as I know, it hasn't been done from an editorial perspective and maybe it should be. And Misha, so have you guys ever done an audit of contributors to the conversation uh, to see the percentage of men versus women? We have. And actually, it's interesting because one of the arguments you get, um, you know, against really making a change in terms of gender balance is people say, oh, well, we choose people on merit and, you know, you can't um, not choose people on merit. And then they end up with, with, with these results where 75% of the people who have merit are men. And you just feel like, could that really be true? I mean, what a coincidence. Sort of unconscious gender bias in there somewhere. So we've, we've decided that the only way to deal with that is to be really conscious about it. Um, so in particular, we're doing work at the moment in our science coverage. And I think it's around about 30% of our um, authors, and we only publish academic authors, are female in our science coverage. And we've got a, a program on at the moment, we're trying to get that to 50%. And what that actually means is deliberately, when we've got a story, we are now deliberately targeting female authors and our editors are instructed to go out and look for them um, as opposed to male authors. Because that's the only way you're going to get around that unconscious bias. And, and basically, one of the things that happens in the media, and we all know this, is you end up with go-to people, dial-a-quote people, people you've used before, people who have built profiles. And many of those profiles have been built at a time when, you know, men were more dominant in many of these professions in a way that, you know, is also problematic. So the only way you're going to address that is if you actually make a conscious effort to do so. 
Now, unfortunately, that is all we have time for on Fourth Estate. Nick O'Malley, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. And Misha Ketchell, thank you for being on the show. Thank you. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the Fourth Estate podcast so you'll never miss an episode. And this is my last week as host of Fourth Estate, so can I just say it's been a pleasure to bring you the show over the past year. And if you wanted to stay in touch, you can always find me on Twitter. From next week, you'll be in the capable hands of Nina Coppell, so make sure you tune in. My name's Olivia Rosenman, and thanks for listening to Fourth Estate. <laughs>